Hi guys, my name's Jason Mountford and welcome to this week's episode of The Hedge Podcast. If you're new to this show, I talk about investing, personal finance, basically growing your wealth, but growing your wealth in a way that allows you to be happy having a focus on the ideal life that you want to live and then arranging your finances, your income, your investments, everything around that goal, around that ideal life. Now, today I'm going to be answering a question that I've had from a um, pretty long-time listener of the show, I think, Dan. I've seen your name uh, popping up on social media, uh, on my social media accounts and uh, in my emails and stuff for, for quite some time. So I've got a really good question from Dan, which is about ethical investing. And I've thrown up a, a clickbait uh, title on this week's episode of the show, um, and I'm going to go into that in a little bit more detail. But I do truly believe that the way that ethical or ESG investing is being sold is a joke and is a bit of a con. So I'm going to explain why why I think that is. And also, if you missed what happened last week with the spring statement, Rishi Sunak's uh, the Chancellor's announcements, I want to very briefly cover that. I don't want to spend too much time on that because I'm sure for people like you guys who are into personal finance, into money, into all this kind of stuff, I'm sure you've probably had enough of it, right? But just on the off, off chance, I'm going to just very quickly go over the, the, the key points of what he announced or rather what he didn't really announce last week. So to begin with, I'm going to dive into this question about ESG. Now, I'm just going to kind of, uh, so Dan has sent me an email um, and uh, without kind of reading the whole things, but uh, reading the whole thing, he's effectively been trying to do some research on ethical funds, ESG funds. It's a very common um it's a common question that people have. It's something that people are focusing on a lot more. I've noticed a huge difference from, say, 18 months, two years ago to now. Um, a couple of years ago, it was kind of a nice to have that maybe the odd person would want to talk to you about. And now there's a lot more focus on this, uh, a lot more um, investment investor interest on ESG ESG investments. Um, and I think it's highlighting some of the real problems with this section sector of the industry. So just to kind of go into to Dan's question, I'll just read a little bit of what, what he sent over to me. So um, right. He's been doing some, some research on investment funds, right? So he says, there are the funds that are called ethical and sustainable, and then there is the Morningstar sustainability rating. Some funds that aren't sustainable are rated higher by Morningstar than ones that are, and some funds that are called sustainable rate quite badly on the Morningstar sustainability ratings. That is, in a nutshell, the problem with inverted commas sustainable or ethical investments. And that is that there is no dictionary definition of what makes a sustainable investment or an ethical investment or a green investment or whatever the terminology that you want to use. And that's because everybody's view on what is ethics and what is what is, what is an ethical investment, what is a sustainable investment, what is a green investment, they're different for everybody. And this is a really good example because Morningstar, um, as as uh, you, you know, I've explained in the past when I have Mark LaMonica from Morningstar on the show uh, a couple of months ago, um, they are one of the biggest players in the world on uh, fund research. Right and investment research—that that is their business model. Um, but at the end of the day, they have to come up with a set criteria that they um, are using as how they're going to um, how they're going to measure these funds. Um, and I actually I don't know exactly what their criteria is, um, but. It's going to be based on a range of different factors, whether that's the um, you know the types of companies that that they 
that funds invest in, the screening processes they use, the sectors that they're prepared to invest in. And they're then going to obviously have to rate these funds in accordance with with those guidelines that they've created. And they need to do that because they need to have um, they need to have the ability to um, have some objective measure and a consistent measure when they're looking at heaps of different funds. All right, so there's no, no, there's no point in having, you know, a kind of finger in the air idea where they look at a fund and think, yeah, that, that feels quite sustainable to me because then, you know, what happens if it lands on a different team's desk next month for a different fund or someone moves on to a different company and then the person who's in charge of rating these funds um, has a different view. So that they need to have those things in place. And then obviously, as a result of that, there are going to be certain funds that do quite well on the measures that they've set and then there's going to be certain funds that do quite poorly. Um, you've then got, as Dan mentioned in his question, you've got funds who are, um, not in all cases, but funds who are sometimes trying to take advantage of this renewed focus on ethical or, or sustainable investing because, you know, the unfortunate truth of the matter is is that for a lot of people, if you're looking at like your pension statement, for example, right, if you're looking at, um, you decided you, you want to do some, um, want to do some, uh, get some more focus on your pension, you want to make sure the investments are right for you, you might jump on there and have a look at the different investment options that are available. If you feel relatively strongly about um, moral, ethical or sustainable investing, you're probably, and you see a couple of funds on there that are called the XYZ Sustainable Fund or the XYZ Ethical Fund, a lot of people are not going to go any further than that. They're just going to say, right, that's me. I would like to invest in an ethical or sustainable manner. Tick the box. I'm going to go with that fund and not actually look what's inside that fund. So the unfortunate truth of the matter is that funds are marketing. They want more assets under management. The more money they get in the fund, the more they're able to charge for that they charge as percentage. So the more the money they get in the fund, the higher their fees are in pounds and pence terms. So they want inflows into their funds. And this is a pretty easy way to do it. Wax sustainable on the name of your fund, good to go. That's going to probably pick up some additional investment. Now it, it might turn some people off as well. There's there's other investors who will do the opposite. They'll look down a list of funds and if one says sustainable or ethical, they're going to say, no, I'm not bothered about that next. So it can work both ways. And I'm not saying that every fund does that, right? All I'm saying is that there's no there's no set criteria from the, the Financial Conduct Authority, the government. Nobody has set a set of conditions or a set of regulations that a fund must meet in order to call itself a sustainable fund. So... That is inherently the problem that, that Dan is coming up against, right? So he's got a fund that is calling itself the XYZ Sustainable Futures Fund or whatever you want to call it. And Morningstar have had a look at that fund and according to their criteria, they're saying, well, to, to our criteria, that's not a sustainable fund. You've then got other funds that perhaps even by chance, um, you know, funds maybe that have been around for a longer time or funds that just didn't want to have a, you know, potentially turn people off the investments, haven't called it anything sustainable. They've just called it the, you know, XYZ equity growth fund or something like that. And actually they are they are meeting the conditions uh, better for Morningstar. And again, it could just be by chance. You know, it could be that, um, you know, that investment manager um, 
is not investing, for example, in oil companies, not from an ethical standpoint, but just purely from a, a um, an economic standpoint. You know, there is a big drive towards um, electric vehicles and um, and reducing the the need for for fossil fuels. And so, from a purely economic standpoint, that's not a bad call investment-wise. You know, even places like you know in the Middle East, like. Dubai, Abu Dhabi, you know, a lot of those countries are focusing so heavily on tourism because they're worried about the future for oil. And they're not doing that from because they care about the environment. They're really not. They're doing it because they want to make sure that once everyone's off oil, they still have plenty of money. Um, and so it's it basically it's a very, very complicated issue. And I think the problem is, is that we're trying to constantly, when it comes to things like the marketing of these funds, um, we're trying to constantly bottle that down into something that's really easily digestible. So it's a messy, messy part of the industry. And I think, I don't think there's an easy solution, but for you, for, from an industry perspective, I mean, but for you as an investor, there is a more easy solution or straightforward solution. I won't say easy because it's still difficult to find out a lot of information, the real nitty gritty detail on certain funds. But basically the first thing you need to do if you're interested in this type of investing is work out exactly what ethical investing means to you. Because as an industry, I'm going to go back to what I've titled this this uh, this episode, ethical investing is a joke. It is. It's being sold. It's a marketing gimmick and it is a way to try and get inflows into the fund. I truly do believe that in a... In a um, in a lot of cases, and even big companies that are coming out saying we're only going to invest ethically, you know, that is a way to get clicks on their website to get people interested in investing in investing with them. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to be more conscious of the environment and conscious of, of ethical preferences. What I'm saying is that it's borderline impossible to be done um, in a efficient and proper way that meets the needs of a wide range of investors, which is what a fund needs to do. And I think it's the details are skimmed over to try and get people's get people's money. So the first thing you need to do is work out what, what those preferences are for you. Now, again, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you what's right or wrong. Um, it's, it's It literally comes down to your own, um, how you feel about investments. And to kind of take that a step back to make it easier to think about and easier to, um, to kind of narrow down, Think about what's important to you in day-to-day life. So, you know, when you're um, when you're at the supermarket, you know, what do you look for? Do you um, look for products that are, um, you know, use limited amounts of plastic? Do you look for products that are guaranteed to have had no like slave labor, for example? Um, uh, do you do you you know look for products that only come from certain regions. So maybe you try to avoid um, things that have come from countries that have a terrible human rights record. Um, when you're, um, you know, things like oil, you know, do you have an electric car or is that something that's important to you? Do you try to take public transport or cycle uh, in more places? And those kind of decisions that you make on a day-to-day basis will allow you to start to narrow down a little bit like what is actually important to you. War is a really big one at the moment, right? So um, there are lots of companies that profit from war, you know, uh, British Aerospace, um, Boeing, Airbus, all these big companies that make planes, they also make fighter jets. A lot of them make weapons. Um, How do you feel about that? You know, is that something that you would rather avoid? And once you 
understand your clear ethical preferences, then you can actually go to the funds that you're considering and look whether those funds match your ethical preferences. Because it's all well and good for Morningstar to say, oh, it's a five-star sustainable fund. But if they, uh, the fund in, in question doesn't, uh, invests, doesn't invest in like oil companies because that's the criteria that Morningstar use or one of the heavy weights of, of their criteria, but they invest in heaps of like tobacco, alcohol, um, you know, pornography companies, weapons. Um, does that really match your sustained, your um, ethical preferences? And it might. You might not care about that stuff and that's fine. But again, it's just about understanding what is ethical for you and what is ethical for the fund that you're wanting to invest in. Because then you can match those two, match those two up and make sure that it uh, aligns with your own personal preferences. And for me, that's kind of why I would probably stay away from um, things like the Morningstar sustainability rating. You know, that is, again, it's a catch-all. Morningstar doesn't know you. Morningstar doesn't know what's important to you, what your preferences are. So they're providing a, a kind of arbitrary rating system which is based on preferences that they've come up with. And by definition, that can't really meet your ethical preferences because it's your ethical preferences haven't been taken into consideration. So it is a really messy in, uh, area. I think the other thing to keep in mind is the more specific you get around what you want to invest in, the tougher it's going to be to find a fund that matches that and the, the less choice you're going to have, um, even if you can find some funds that match. So, you know, you have to strike that balance, I think, because, you know, you will. it's quite easy to get to, get to a point where you can't really invest in anything. You know, think of, um, let's use Apple as an example, right? You'd, you'd really struggle to find a fund that didn't have exposure to Apple. It's the biggest company in the world. I think it still is, last time I checked. Um, it is generally not going to fall through a lot of the filters of of what is sorry is going to get through a lot of the filters for ethical screening because you know it's it doesn't have any um it doesn't have it's not like the, the, the it's not the easy ones right it's not like an oil producer or a motor vehicle manufacturer or, or anything like that like it doesn't make weapons doesn't make alcohol doesn't make tobacco so all the kind of simple filters from an ethical standpoint it gets through those but you know, there's been a lot of negative stuff about Apple in the past in terms of the the wages that they pay or don't pay, the kind of child labor and stuff in China. Um, a lot of their factories or all their factories are in China. And again, China doesn't have a great record from um, a human rights record. They've had a lot of questions over how they're treating people. And um, again, if you extrapolate it that far, then most companies, companies that manufacture stuff are going to be dealing very heavily with China. And if you, you know, if, if you have an ethical problem with the, the Communist Party in China, then that rules out most companies in the world, especially companies that manufacture things. So I guess it's just an example of, you know, you are going to have to tread the line between having a pure, 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 pure um, portfolio that only invests in solar energy companies or something like that. You know, again, the solar panels probably made in China. So, um, yeah, it's just about understanding where you come from, what's important to you, and then aligning your portfolio to that as best you can on the understanding that there will be compromises. You're not going to be able to get it perfect. So thank you very much, Dan, for that question, guys. If you have questions of your own that you'd like me to answer, then please do send them through to me. Um, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what's going on in your world and your finance and um, money situation. The 
way to get in touch with me is via the website, the Hedge website, which is just at thehedge.io. There's a link to the show in the show notes as well. Jump over on there and drop me an email. Let me know what's going on in, in your life, what financial questions you've got, and I'll do my best to answer them on the podcast. I always get back to you anyway, so even if it's a question I don't necessarily think is right for, for the show, I will shoot you back um, some more information, a bit of an answer to your question either way. So please, please do get in touch with me. Um, the last thing or the second thing I wanted to um, touch on briefly today is just the uh, announcement of, from Rishi Sunak for the at the spring statement last week. So um, this is kind of like a mini budget. It's not a full budget, but it's kind of like an update. Um, and it's nothing really that, I mean, it's kind of, there's quite a lot of bad news in there to be fair. So the main, main one of the big takeaways was that uh, Rishi Sunak or the, um, Sorry, the uh, what are they called? It's not the it's not the uh, Office of National Statistics, I don't think. Anyway, the the government body that does the forecast, maybe the OBR. Anyway, I can't remember off the top of my head. The um, forecast for inflation uh, for the next for the rest of this year for for the average rate of inflation for 2022 is 7.4%. So I've been talking about inflation a lot. Um, everyone's been talking about inflation a lot. It's at, it's expected to average 7.4% this year. Now the reason why that is a big deal from my point of view, is that currently inflation is 6.2%. So it doesn't take a genius to work out that if it's 62 now and they're projecting an average of 74 for the rest of this year, it means it's going to have to go pretty pretty far north of 74 in order in order to get, to get that average because we're obviously lower than that now. So inflation is definitely going to get worse before it gets better. Um, there's been a lot of talk of energy prices, but the price cap hasn't come into force yet. It comes in, into force in a few days. So there was some hope that Rishi Sunak would have some measures, um, some measures to soften the blow, I guess, a little bit. Uh, and to be honest, it fell, fell massively flat from my point of view anyway. So just to kind of quickly run through the changes that have been made, a lot of these you, you will have probably heard of, uh, heard about already, but very quickly, the fuel duty, which is the tax on fuel, um, large portion of, of what you pay at the pump is, is tax. I think from memory, it's like 57p, something like that uh, for every liter. So they're cutting that, but they have cut that by 5p a liter. Um, I did some very rough figures and I worked out that for the average car with around 50, 50 liter tank, which is about average, that's going to save you about £2.50. Um, if you fill up every couple of weeks, that's like 65 quid a year. I mean, come on. That's not going to even touch the sides for um, for people who are struggling with with the rising cost of living. So that was that was a waste of time, in my opinion. Um, he's also scrapped um, the VAT on energy saving home improvements. So this is things like whole, uh, solar panels, heat pumps, that sort of thing. Um, number one, you know, it's, the rate is only five percent. So number one, what's the big what's the big um, reduction there? He said that it's going to save the average householder a thousand pounds, right? But then I don't know really where he got that from, um, because the average cost to install solar panels is like four thousand eight hundred pounds. So number one, that the thousand is not five percent of um, four thousand eight hundred, well above. And secondly, you know, in order to actually take advantage of this benefit, you've got to have like five grand cash that you can afford to lump on solar panels on your roof or something. Um, so, you know, the people who are going to be hit hardest by or are being hit hardest by the cost of living increase are not necessarily, or they're not going to have five grand laying around they can waste on on solar panels. Um, so again, for me, you know, that that's middle-class welfare from my, my 
point of view, you know, the ones who are going to take advantage of that are people who are probably doing fairly well, have done well throughout the pandemic, not necessarily feeling the pinch of the cost of living as much, maybe had planned to do solar panels on the roof anyway, and they're going to just go ahead and do it now, save themselves a bit going forward. So that was really disappointing. Um, really the only um, only kind of benefit for lower income earners was the national insurance threshold increase. So you've got your income tax, which you pay, which, you know, basic rate, personal allowance, high rate, that sort of stuff. And then you have to pay national insurance contributions as well. Now, the threshold uh, for that has been increased by £3,000. So it's going to match the basic rate or the personal allowance rather. So basically what that means is if you're earning um, over the personal allowance, you know, it could save you up to about, I think it was £330 a year. Um, you know, so not not nothing, but again, not a huge, huge difference. And also it's important to keep in mind that these changes are coming off the back of an actual increase to national insurance, which is coming in the new tax year. So um, Martin Lewis threw some figures up on Twitter. And again, I should have looked this up before, but I think broadly speaking, if you earn less than 33,000 or around that 33, 35,000 pound mark, you're going to be um, slightly better off after these new announcements in the, in the spring statement. If you earn more than that figure, so if you're kind of in the, in the high 30s, or above, um, you're still going to be worse off when the new tax year rolls around with the increase to national insurance. So look, there was a couple other bits and pieces there, um, some extra money for the household support fund, which helps local councils with people who are really struggling financially um, and some some um, reductions in business rates and that sort of thing. But for the for individuals, uh, pff, a big fat lot of nothing really from my, my perspective, not going to make an impact on the household budget pretty much at all. Um, he tried to kind of pick up the mood at the end and get the crowd going um, with a call that the they're going to actually he's going to be cutting the basic rate of income tax from 20 to 19 percent and I, I was listening live to this i heard it, i think okay all right here we go here we go that's actually pretty that's actually a pretty decent call but then he said it would be from 2024 so <laughs> you know taking the wind out of the sails there. Um, he's obviously trying to have a little bit of good news to get ahead of things um, in the media and that sort of thing. But again, from my perspective, what does that, that doesn't help people now. Who knows what the world's going to look like in a couple of years time. Um, so unfortunately, no real good news. I think from my perspective, it all just keeps coming back the same thing. You know, the biggest way you can impact the house, the, the cost of living increases is by in, increasing your income. You know, whether that's making sure your investments are on point, building up those investments, making sure that they're working hard for you over the long term, maximizing what you can earn in your career, whether that's upskilling, whether that's looking for promotions, whether that's looking for a new job, changing industries, whatever, um, or, you know, starting, starting businesses on the side, doing freelance work, whatever. It's all about income. The more income you've got, more protection you've got against these these cost of, of living increases. So I'd like to hear what you guys thought of the spring statement how you're feeling about um, what's going on in in the world at the moment, from especially from a cost of living perspective. Um, I'd like to, the, the more information I get from you guys, how you're feeling, what's important to you, what's where you're feeling it, where you're not feeling it, you know, the more I can tailor my content to make sure I'm bringing you stuff that you actually is going to be value to you, valuable to you. Um, so, the last thing I wanted to talk about today, uh, and again, I did mention it briefly on the, on the podcast last week, is... A reminder that this Friday, 
Uh, I'm doing the first the first session of Friday Lunch Money. Um, this is my lunch break. You can jump on on your lunch break and I'm going to be going live on YouTube and talking about what's been going on in the world of personal finance and investing for the week just gone. So as I said on the show last week and just to kind of reiterate, on this show, on the Hedge podcast, I do often talk about stuff that's not directly related to uh, investing in personal finance. So last week, uh, Nick Bradley, we I, I had a really good chat with him, but there was a lot of content in that episode that was about like starting businesses, building businesses, that kind of stuff, which is which is different. Like it's it's related. I think it's important because of the income pieces just explaining there, but it's not what's going on with ISIS, what's going on with investments, what's going on with spring statement, that sort of stuff. So every Friday at 12 o'clock um, UK time, but I was going to say GMT, but it's not GMT now. It's like BST, isn't that? British summertime. 12 o'clock midday, um, I'm going to be grabbing a sandwich, having a coffee, sitting down with you guys and talking about, I won't have a sandwich actually, that'd be weird if I'm just munching away on YouTube live, but I'll be there on my lunch break um, talking to you guys about what's been going on in the world of money. I would love to see you guys on there live, that way I can answer your actual questions. So, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable chatting away to myself for half an hour, 45 minutes. I'll obviously have some things that I want to um, talk about, but I think it's going to be way more valuable if you can actually jump on and ask questions. And I think if you're on that stream with me, you know, you might not think you have questions and then I'll bring something up and then that will prompt the question in your mind that you can you can shoot that through to me on, on the stream as we're going and I, I can answer those as we go. So I'd love to see as many of you guys on there as possible. Um, and like everything, I'm going to see how it works. I'm not committing to do this for the rest of my life. Um, we'll try it, for, try it for a month or two uh, and see what the uptake is, see if, if you guys are enjoying it, see if it's providing value to you and, uh, and take it from there, really. So any other questions, anything else you want from me, as always, you can jump on the website, thehedge.io. Also, if you haven't picked it up yet, make sure you go and um, get your free copy of my ebook, Modern Investing Fundamentals. Again, if you go on the website onto the homepage, it's the pop your email address in right at the top there and it will be dropped in your inbox uh, within minutes. So do make sure you head over there, check out the website. Um, there's plenty of other content on there as well. As always, guys, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to what I have to say on money and finance, investing, all that kind of stuff. And I look, I really look forward to, number one, speaking to you on Friday, Friday lunch money, but also speaking to you on next week's episode of the podcast.